if you don't have a bike, you need to get one. Go on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace and find a bike in your area because, yeah, Matt and I, like I said, we I take the girls to school on my bike. Matt picks them up on his bike and I ride into work after I drop off the girls to school on my bike and ride home. And it is just such a pleasant experience. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. All right. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. And I could not be doing this without my co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Not much. Just, you know, getting ready for another one of these lovely March snowstorms here in Boston. (laughs) Yeah, gotta love them. What about you, Cody? So actually, Justin, I just kicked off the book tour with Grant Sabatier. We are en route to Philly right now, and we're just going to be sweeping down the coast and hitting some awesome events. But enough about me and you, and let's get to the meat, the good stuff about this episode. And so who we have on today is Joel and Matt from How to Money. And I mean, they really brought it. They really showed us How to Money. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, we met these guys down at FinCon, just hit it right off. I mean, it's just two guys that you could carry on a conversation with all day, super easy to get along with. Obviously, you know, best buds has a good vibe to it. What I really liked about it is, you know, this was just kind of those simple, wholesome financial tips that was really focused more around setting up a good lifestyle and a good environment and a happy space for their family without just driving into maximizing every single dollar. All right, Justin, but enough of us just babbling on. Let's bring these guys into the show. So for me, it was growing up and man, my parents are two of the greatest people I know, but they just were not good with their finances. And so it led to a lot of arguments when I was a kid between my mom and dad. And it was just, it was hard because they didn't handle their money well. They, they didn't know how to stick to a budget. They didn't know how to stop spending. And so eventually it all culminated in the fact that my parents declared bankruptcy when I was like 12 or 13. And that was just a really tough time in a really formative period in my life when that happened. And so my whole view of money really revolved around those few years, kind of my experiences there in, in my home growing up. And so I just, I knew from that moment forward, I just became like a penny pincher. And I didn't, I didn't want to spend any money that I didn't have. And, and more than that, I wanted to save a crap load of money. And so that experience just left an indelible mark on me. Like, hey, you know what, Joel, you got to be good with your money. Money provides security. Money allows you to to be able to be in charge of your own future and not spending money aimlessly or not knowing, you know, what's going out versus what's coming in can lead to just so much tumult in your financial life. And then and then those finances, right, they, they're not separate from your personal life. They translate directly into that, too. So an unstable financial life can lead to an unstable home life. And I just never wanted that for, for myself and my family now. So it's always been important to me. And it just, yeah, it started from those years seeing my parents just not handle money well. And how about you, Matt? Yeah, Joel and I are brothers, so I have the exact same story. We're twins and I was adopted. I'm kidding. No way, man. That's weird. <laughs> I was about to freak uh, out. I was like, I totally didn't catch that. Like, <laughs> how did I not know that? No, so for me, honestly... Uh, I grew up in, I mean, it's funny, Joel mentioned his youth, right, growing up and, you know, so many memories and so many impressions and attitudes, especially towards money, I think are created in those years. And along this sort of, you know, in that same time period, you know, my parents did maybe some dumb things with money, but in general, I was taught pretty clearly and pretty well, right, 
So early on, I would say maybe I think I was around 12, maybe even 13 years old. My dad had mentioned he was the the one that I'll credit with planting the seeds of financial independence. And he had mentioned to me in my mind, he had just mentioned it, but I'm sure he probably like sat down and explained it to me <laughs> so that I would I would actually listen and have this memory ingrained into my into my thoughts and my memory. But he had told me that, you know, Matt, if you can have your money work harder for you, then you can actually work for your money you're set. Like that's the point. Like that's the the sort of uphill trudge. And once you get to that point, it's, you know, you're, you're good to go as long as you're, as long as you continue to make smart financial decisions. And yeah. So from that point on, that's sort of what got me started on the path of, of trying to be smart with my money. Did I know at the time what the hell <laughs> he was talking about? No, of course not. I just knew that, well, that's the, the way that you want to approach it. And you know, I knew some of these terms, but again, I was a, I was a preteen. I wasn't even a teenager to where I was making, you know, dumb decisions yet. But still, having that sort of baseline of knowledge started shaping, I think, who I was, my attitudes towards money, and and how, how I spend it and how I earn it. Just all the things that are involved with how we handle our personal finances today. So I know for me, like you know, as as you get older, some of your family members start seeing you know, that you are responsible for your money and at a point that, you know, they probably wouldn't listen to you when you're 12, but now you're getting a little older and you're starting to kind of get a track record. Some family members might be open to it. Some may be just, it may feel super awkward trying to talk to them. And uh, Joel, since you're my favorite of the two, I'll ask you. Fuck <laughs> it, Justin. How has it been now, like later in life? Like, okay, you're 12, you see your parents, you know, they go through bankruptcy Fast forward, now they start to see you doing really well with money. Did they learn before? Did you have a chance to teach them? Is it awkward? Like, how was that trying to pass those lessons on to your parents? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like it, you know, so much of those conversations and how well people on the other side respond, it depends on, on a couple of things. One thing is, you know, how much trust do you have in each other? And, and I think the other thing is just kind of a willingness to change. And, and so for my parents, you know, we have a lot of trust between us. You know, my parents are for real two of the greatest people I've ever met. I want to be more like them in so many ways. But when, when it comes to handling their money, you know, they've definitely done better over the years since then. I mean, that was a traumatic experience you know, for me as a kid. But I mean, so much more so for my parents, you know, losing a car and having to go through through all of the things that, that you go through when you have to declare bankruptcy. And now our conversations, you know, we've had enough conversations when probably I was kind of brash early on in my 20s and, and I probably didn't approach things you know, very, very kindly or softly. And, and, and I probably turned them off to talking about money. And, you know, in the last few years, I've, I've calmed down a good bit in, in the way that we were able to discuss things, you know, kindly and normally. But also, too, I, I just know that that is a soft spot. That is an area where I kind of have to let them be them and do and do their own thing. And, and, and my life, the life that I've chosen I know that they think some of the things that I choose are weird or like, why doesn't he spend any of the money he makes or why, why would he choose to do something like that when he's got the money to do something else? And so we both probably, we both view things differently. I, I know that. And so there's just no point in me trying to change their minds or trying to get them to behave differently because I've just realized that it's going to create more of a sore spot than it is going to create change in either of our lives. And so, you know, we love each other. We talk about almost everything under the sun. But it's just rare that, that money comes up now at this point, honestly. So, Matt, I'm going to kind of swing this to you because you guys came from totally different backgrounds. Like, that's what I love about financial independence. It really doesn't matter where you start. It's kind of just where you finish. And 
Matt's dad was telling him that financial independence was possible. And that seems like kind of a totally different mindset than where you were coming from. So Matt, I would love to hear if you and your dad still talk about this stuff today. Like, does your dad still guide you and coach you and tell you all these financial tricks and tips that he learned along the way? And, you know, I wish I had a, a better answer for you, but we honestly don't talk about, about finances and, and money all that often. We do have, interestingly enough, fairly different viewpoints of how to invest and different approaches towards specifics and, and things like that. But Matt's all Bitcoin. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love the Bitcoin. Just everything I got, I'm throwing it at the Bitcoin. But no, Please don't I mean, take his advice. <laughs> <laughs> Please hear the, the irony. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, but you know, that's just something that we don't discuss often. A big thing that Joel and I love discussing and, and that we're uh, you know, huge proponents of is real estate. And that's not something, for instance, that's, that's something that my family ever dabbled in, investing in real estate. That was a foreign concept, honestly, having something other than your, your primary residence. And, and then so, you know, in that case, it was really, I think, foreign to, to discuss that with them. You know, they're very supportive and excited for me, but that's sort of the, the extent at which our, our conversation would, would get to. They would, you know, they would have some questions and were, were curious themselves, but I think they were happy to see how things are going for, for me and, and, you know, my immediate family. But other than that, honestly, yeah, there's, we don't, we don't dive into the, the nuance of it, of it too much. We're either talking about stuff that doesn't involve money, honestly. <laughs> okay. Cause I think I'm super fortunate in that my mom is like totally on board with Phi. Like she will come to me or text me and pitch me side hustle ideas. And I just think it's the coolest thing ever. And I'm super lucky to have a mom like that. And so I was just wondering if it's kind of that same dynamic between you and your dad, Matt. But it sounds like you guys don't really get into the weeds too much. It's more like a overview. But even that overview, understanding that money can like grow and compound exponentially, that's huge to understand at a young age. Exactly. I think too, Cody, like that makes the online forums and the ability for people that are into financial independence that care about this thing, it, that it makes that so much more powerful because you you know Matt and I really are are each other's sounding boards when it comes to thinking about money and financial independence. We talk to our wives. We've got maybe maybe another friend or two, but really you know, we've we've got each other to talk about these things. We care about it. You know, we care about financial independence so much. And, and, and I think that's what people find so powerful about podcasts about financial independence or about online groups on Facebook or, or, or blogs where they feel like somebody is communicating something in a way that they believe to be true, but they just don't know anyone else to talk about it with. And money is also one of the, the three issues that people never, never bring up. It's just so uncomfortable to talk about in general for most people that they'd rather talk about politics with someone they disagree with than, than money. Because it, it can be so uncomfortable. And so I, I think it, it is just a, a powerful thing when you do find those people, when you find people that are like you and have a similar viewpoint and, and want to talk about it. And I think people that are into financial independence, when they find that, they're just so stoked. Because it, it's like, wow, somebody thinks like me. There's people out there that are crazy and want to save 40, 50% of what they make, just like me. Oh my gosh. And, and I think that's what's, what's cool about the movement and, and where, how you can find like-minded people online now. So with you two, have you found anything in particular that y'all use to kind of keep each other accountable? Have y'all kind of set little competitions with each other? Like, how do you kind of stay focused as a, as a tag team? How do you keep each other accountable on this journey? Justin, are you talking specifically in regards to financial independence or just kind of being smart with your money? Yeah, I think either way. I mean, financial independence yeah. or just side hustles, whatever, you, you know, any kind of financial thing. Do you, do you kind of compete with each other or like how do you 
both stay focused. Sometimes I think we get in a space and we feel like you get it all figured out fairly early on or to some degree and you can get kind of complacent. Do y'all do anything to kind of keep each other smart on topics or again, like compete with each other or anything to just keep it fresh? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I feel like that's, that has a lot to do with why we started the podcast. We would, we're constantly talking to each other about, about things, right? Whether it be just specific concepts, news, financial, just approaches towards things. When we first started talking about the podcast, that's that was the basis of it. Is just that, man, we're we're already talking about this stuff constantly anyway. We're always always you know we're we're always having a beer, <laughs> so why not why not record this and and sort of find a way to relate to others? I know for us, and so you know you're talking about how it seems like it can be easy to maybe once you know everything, either get complacent and I find I think sometimes too folks can either when they figure out the knowledge and they figure out all the how to. Sometimes folks can get too obsessed with the numbers. And I think that's one of the ways that Joel and I complement each other real well is that for us, our sort of financial independence journey isn't all about achieving phi. This varies in, in different amounts for both of us. But I know for, for like me and my wife specifically, like this is, these are conversations that we've had over, over the years, and especially lately as we've kind of you know, gotten more into uh, podcasting and just into the financial independence space and personal finance as a whole, but to determine what are our goals, you know, what do we want our lives to look like? And from that, that informs what we do, that informs our action, right? And so that's honestly one of the things I'm worried about with folks who are diving into FI right now. They learn all about it and they get fired up, pun intended, and they decide, <laughs> okay, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to hit that number. You know, this is my FI number, I'm going after it. And then, you know, and then after that, I'm going to be living the life. Well, that's great. And that's awesome. And I think for a lot of folks, that's something that they're able to latch on to. But for someone, I would say even for us too, maybe, you know, my wife and I, a little bit older, like we've got three kids. And for us, it was more about identifying what we wanted our life to look like. And because of that, that introduces a lot of balance into our life between our personal finances and spending money, right? And, you know, maintaining a lifestyle and what we want that to look like. We could be financially independent tomorrow if we decided to cut our expenses in half. <laughs> like literally, it's just it's, it's no problem. But at the same time, what kind of life is that the life where, where we want to be teaching, I guess, our girls? Is that the attitude you know, towards money that we want to be sharing with them? Joel mentioned how like those early years as a kid are really, really shape your, your views and your attitudes towards money. And for us, we want to make sure that we have a balanced approach towards that. And that my wife and I are are teaching these valuable lessons to our girls, but at the same time not putting too much of an emphasis on it. You know, the fact that we talk about it <laughs> on podcasts and we hang out and it's part of our, our discussion and we've got investment properties, that's awesome. And I love that in the context of our sort of what I would call our our normal life. And so I'm just really careful, I guess, about how much emphasis that, that we will place on financial independence, especially. Do either one of you have like a, a good or funny story of maybe where you went too far, you kind of got off into the deprivation, you did get a little too overboard? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I guess there were probably some times hanging out with friends where we would do some dumpster diving or, uh, <laughs> or, or well, I just would, I feel like I would make decisions about places to stay on a vacation with my wife or something like that that were less than romantic. Probably you, you could put an equal sign to crap hole right there. <laughs> uh, so... So I think, too, I don't know, like, I think it resonates with me. I think what Matt's trying to say, too, is there, there are a lot of people that they find out about the financial independence movement, which 
in my mind, is a movement that is beautiful. It's encouraging. It's empowering. It, it helps people understand that they've got more control over their lives than they ever thought possible if they would really just tweak a few things when it comes to their finances. And we completely agree with that. And, and we think that's really important. I think, too, you know, as Matt and I've gotten a little bit older and hopefully a touch more wisdom and just a little more perspective, especially having young kids, we prioritize our time more than we do our money already. Uh, and so, you know, when I was in my early mid 20s, I was willing to work more to put in the effort to save and invest more in order to kind of kickstart that financial independence journey. And now where I'm at with kids is, I, well, you know what, I actually I want to work more about things that I care about a lot. And I want to to prioritize not working more than 40 hours a week. Because if I wanted to work more and get more side hustles and make more money, I could do that. And I could defy, you know, like Matt said, really quickly. Or if we wanted to, you know, move to a crummier neighborhood a little ways away, I could do that too. And we could be five tomorrow. But five is not the end all be all, right? And there are so many choices that you have to make inside of that for what fits your lifestyle. And I think our, you know, what we talk about in our podcast is kind of a lot of those things. You have to, everything's a trade-off and you have to decide, well, yeah. well, if we left our, if we left our house in our community, like literally where I can bike to 10 friends' houses that are great friends uh, that we have dinner with all the time. Well, I don't know. I don't think it's worth it, right? Like we have this amazing community where we live. We have an amazing school that my daughter goes to and Matt and I, we ride bikes to take and pick them up from school. And so there's all these lifestyle things that you can't quantify in terms of numbers to a certain degree, right? That Matt and I are totally about kicking the consumer lifestyle and figuring out ways to cut back, live in smaller spaces, you know, drive fewer cars, drive less in the cars that you own. Like there's all these changes you can make, but also realize too that financial independence, while it's empowering and it's great, it is also not the end. And I feel like I've seen a lot of people too in the financial independence community actually kind of find that out as they reach get closer to their fine number or they're working you know, way too much in order to try to achieve this goal that feels like it's going to save them in the end. And, and in the end, it's actually, it's actually like, oh, wow, I, I hit something on paper, but I missed the journey along the way. That's just a sad thing. I, I don't want anyone to be there. So something that I'm curious about, and I guess, Matt, you can tackle this one first because, Joel, I targeted you last time, is when you first discovered financial independence, it's not like you read one article and all of a sudden you go from saving zero to 50%. So what were some of the granular like steps that you took to actually start improving your lifestyle and making your money work for you? Cody, I think that's an awesome question. And so, you know, I mentioned early on the sort of seeds of financial independence that my dad planted. And so I had that idea, but I didn't have any tools really <laughs> other than you always need to, you know, you always need to save money. And that's not much of a tool. That's just an idea. And so as far as granular stuff, man, for me, it was coming across Dave Ramsey, <laughs> which oh, wow. was, yeah, a lot of people, he's just kind of old school and his big thing is only about uh, really getting out of debt. But for me, that was, it was, it was huge because it was focused and specifically, he had one of the better and only podcasts when I was first getting into podcasts, I want to say 11 years ago now at this point, it was back in 2007, 2006 and 2007. I was at a job where I could listen to a ton of podcasts. And so being able to listen to his show cut up into, I guess, 30-minute segments or whatever it was, was a way to kind of instill these different lessons that he's telling people to do, a lot of which I totally agree with. There's a few things, certainly, <laughs> that I completely disagree with him on now. But for me, that was a huge sort of way to learn and just to learn a, a lot of a bunch of different stuff. 
But then, um, so I would say that. So having some, some practical, small lessons like that. And then the next thing that I would credit the most is budgeting. At that point, I started budgeting every month and I would keep track of every dollar that I spent. So literally, I can hop on my computer right now and pull up Excel spreadsheets from 2007. And I can show you where literally every dollar that I've spent since then, where it's gone and the, the dollars that I've saved. And so for me, knowing, right, knowing and, and knowing where, the, where money's going, knowing yourself, knowing your habits, knowing your spending patterns, that is a wake-up call. And anyone that is not budgeting just doesn't know where the hell their money is going because they don't know where their money is going. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. You might think <laughs> that this is what you're spending or you might think that this is how much you're saving, but until you're actually writing it out or, you know, it's all automated, a lot of it now, right? If you have meant send you the reports, if you're not reading those reports and seeing where that money is going, then you've got no clue. You've got no clue on, on figuring out what you can tweak and ways to improve your, your spending or your saving. And for me, man, that was the number one thing that helped me to just get an overall, you know, 10,000 foot picture of my finances. And I would absolutely recommend anyone to start budgeting if you're not already. Justin, he is making you look like a chump. <laughs> I know he's got huh? stuff going back to 2007. I've only got it till 2015. <laughs> <laughs> now, I will say, though, that like you'll get there, you'll get there. I think there's a, a misconception with, and I kind of hate tossing around the different words. Like there's a budget and then there's like tracking your expenses. And I think even if you're scared of tracking your, like, or giving yourself these hard number budget numbers, like, oh, I can only spend $70 on gas, just at least tracking what you're spending, A, you will just automatically start spending less because it's kind of like hitting the dog with a newspaper every time you type <laughs> that number in. You're like, crap, I spent more money. And then the other side of it is how in the world are you supposed to know how you're going to retire if you don't know how much money you're spending now? Like it's such a obvious tip that you give, but so many people don't follow it. So I think that's a great put and I'm super jealous of your longevity and stamina. <laughs> yeah, no, I think what you said, man, that's, that's completely great. Like, and for most folks setting that first budget, you got to start somewhere. And so what are you going to base it on? Base it on what you spent that month or the month before. Take those numbers. And then you can start tweaking from there. That's the easiest way to make a budget, right? If you're making a budget for the first time, take your previous month's expenses, take those numbers, and then start working it from there. And so, Joel, let's take it back to you. So I'd love to hear like the granular steps because people love hearing these concepts, but sometimes they just don't really know how to act. So I'd love to hear what were the first steps that you started to put in place. It's not like you went from zero to 50% savings rate. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think for me, so... I was just always really cheap and, and I figured out ways to do everything cheaper than everyone else was doing it. So I would always drive. I mean, I didn't even buy a car that cost more than $2,000 for quite a while. And when I bought my nicest car that was, it was almost a decade ago now, it was a Nissan Altima manual transmission for $3,200. And that beast lasted me eight years and I sold it for 1200 bucks. And so I was just always willing to spend less on everything else. And when I finally bought a house, I rented out the other room until until I got married and I kicked that roommate to the curb and got a much better looking one. Um, <laughs> and so so that it's stuff like that really like that was that's house hacking before house hacking, right? And so it was just really being willing to cut costs until the point that it hurt so that I could spend money on the things that actually mattered to me and put money away for my future self in retirement accounts through work, right? 401k and then through my my Roth IRA outside of that. 
And I know there's a debate in the Pi community, Roth IRA versus regular, but I like the Roth IRA a lot for a lot of reasons. And then on top of that, putting money away, saving money so that I could buy more properties. And, you know, Matt and I talk on the podcast, we've got an episode kind of about how like the easy way to approach rental properties. And, and for me, I think it's uh, really helpful if you live in the property first. There's a lot of reasons why. And so I would live in the property and fix it up just a little bit here and there. And then, you know, I was able to put less down. I was able to get a better interest rate and then I move into another house and I do the same thing every two years. And that was kind of my plan. So, so yeah, I think there's so many ways that you can cut expenses and that you can find you know, sideways to, to increase your savings rate and increase what you're investing in and find smart ways to, to buy investments that maybe are a little outside of the box or you haven't even thought of yet. So a specific subcategory of the, of the budget and cutting back is, is groceries. And I know that's something that, you know, a lot of people don't, really understand how I keep mine so low, but Joel, like, I think you have an interesting situation because you got this larger family and you, y'all did a podcast about how you're keeping it to a dollar per meal. So that's another area where I think it'd be interesting to hear some of those granular tips for how are you keeping those meals down, especially when you got those, you know, the, the hungry fiending little kids that eat their <laughs> body weight and food every day. Like, who need the snacks? Like, you know me, like I can say no to the Doritos, but the kids, I'm sure they cry sometimes and got to have the snacks. So, so how are y'all keeping that budget down? And what are just some of the big tenants to, to keeping that grocery bill down when you got a family? I will say Matt is the expert on this. If you listen to that episode, you'll hear how his family does it. So Matt, take it away on this one. Seriously, you inspire me, bro. Well, I'll defer to my wife because she's the, <laughs> <laughs> she's the one that, that truly makes it happen. But I mean, I'm happy to, happy to talk about it. Well, it's funny that you mentioned this too, Justin, because I know that you and I talked about this at FinCon, how, yeah, you, you definitely keep you, uh, Keep yourself fed on an incredibly cheap budget. Maybe we can uh, get to the advanced steps next. But um, man, for us, so yeah, we've got a family of five. We got three girls, and it is not a joke when I tell you that each one of those three girls eats as much as my wife does, 100%. <laughs> Every single meal. One of them is one years old, and what? Yeah, and one of them is one, and she probably eats the second most of the three of them. She she eats more than the than the three year old. So she's yeah. like a sumo wrestler. It's amazing. <laughs> she's she's ripped. But so for us, man, the, the biggest thing is that, first of all, my wife loves to cook. So she's into the food. And so for a lot of folks, unfortunately, I think food is a just a really intimidating thing. It's something that they just don't like talking about or, or even thinking about, right? Like we talked about the sort of taboo and the thing around money. I think a lot of times people feel that way when it comes to food. It's just not something that they they want to spend any time devoted towards. And so I get that. And I know that there's a lot of tips that are out there that are more geared towards folks who are really into food. But some easy things that I think anybody could do, and that is, first of all, avoid anything like prepackaged. So there's a lot of pre-processed foods, basically anything in the center of a grocery store where they're wrapped in plastic or cardboard. Like those are things that are processed. <laughs> and yeah, you might be able to find deals here and there, but generally speaking, it's going to be a lot more expensive than things around the periphery. You know, anytime an object touches another hand or go, goes through another machine or gets sent to another facility, that increases the cost of it. Uh, this is more like a theoretical sort of level, right? It decreases the nutrition usually. <laughs> yeah, it's true, man. It's, it's so true. And so for us, you know, we eat pretty clean. We're, you know, we eat veggies and fruit and dairy. We, we don't eat a ton of meat. That's another tip is that we, you know, we spend a minimum amount of money on on meat and you guys also eat a lot of the cheaper cuts of meat and we've started doing that too exactly so a lot of people buy the boneless skinless chicken breast for 2.99 a pound 
when all the flavor is in chicken that has bones in it. It's in the thighs, dog. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thighs of where it's at. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, that's a huge thing, too, for people. Like, stop buying these fancy cuts of meat. Like, there's so much flavor in the much less fancy cuts. Exactly. Um, but honestly, we just, and even more so lately, we've been eating meat less and less. It's just not a huge part of our diet. And, you know, and like I work out, I still do, I'm, you know, we, we live active lifestyles. It's not like, um, we're like this <laughs> shriveled up skinny family where we're just like <laughs> deprivating ourselves of any nutrition or anything like that. Like we're, we're very active. Like just this weekend, man, we we're, we we're hiking on the trails at an outdoor nature center. And then we hit up a brewery afterwards. It was the perfect one too. I had a great weekend, fellas. How about you? <laughs> But then, you know, honestly, on that note, though, I think the third thing, and this isn't something that we even talked about in that episode, Joel, but we didn't talk about how, generally speaking, just about, I mean, I would dare to say most of America probably does overeat, like sort of our eating habits and how we approach food and see it as something that you do when you're bored sometimes or something that you do without thinking. There's a lot of negative sort of attitudes and approaches towards how we relate to food. And unfortunately, I think that results in us spending money on food that we don't need to be spending as well. Yeah, and you, I think you especially see that at sit-down restaurants, right? I, I was just thinking about this tonight when we were eating dinner as a family, and I was thinking about how at a sit-down restaurant, usually the portions are double that. And so that's a great way to save when you go out with your partner is to order one entree and split it or order a couple of starters and kind of treat it like tapas, something like that, because those entrees are probably 3,000 calories and way more food than you should actually be eating. And so if you can just, you're, you're not going to go home hungry, even if you eat half of it, right? And you split it. But that's just a great way to save, save some money and, and prevent overeating at the same time. That's a, a great put on the restaurants. Like me and my girlfriend never order two entrees. Like we always order just one and split it. Right. And I mean, because the thing is like, listen, guys, you know, if you're still hungry, it's not going anywhere. You can order more. But what happens 90% of the time you know, you order them both. You're miserable if you do finish them. If you don't, you take it home. And then like for whatever reason, I swear like restaurant food just generally is not as good leftover as like I don't have no problems eating leftovers that I cook like meal prepping. But half the stuff you get at restaurants just end up not being that good the next day. So it's half of it's fried, man. You know, anything yeah. that's fried, you throw in the fridge and then you pull it out and it's just soaked. And oh, it's just disgusting. I Tripled hate that. Up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, like it tightens up into this like, wad of like chewed up gum. Justin, I would love to hear more of your approaches towards food because we talked about this briefly down in Orlando a couple weeks ago. But, but yeah, man, you eat, you eat for cheap. Yeah. So I think some of the things you hit on are those big things. Like, you know, I'm not going to, you know, how they say you stay around the ring of the grocery store, you stay around the edges. I think my big things are on certain recipes. You keep the ingredient list low. Like there's so many of these are random little like seasonings and spot and sauces that are these little toppings you don't even notice that make the price of the meal go two or three times meats and vegetables. I have people ask me, are you doing some kind of extreme couponing? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever seen a coupon for Brussels sprouts. I haven't. So no. <laughs> uh, and then like you said, Brussels with the portion control, is so good, by the way, that's like my number uh, one go-to vegetable these days, dude. So good. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you do them up? Do you like boil them up and get them up, get them soft? No, like, I'm a, I'm an oven all the way. Just olive oil, yeah, roaster, some, yeah. maybe some, uh, you know, some crushed pepper. Yes, I love it. So keep the ingredients low. And the one thing that I say that some people disagree with, but that I'm a big fan of is not making a grocery list. Because if I make a grocery list and I say like, I've got to have ground beef or, you know, name the ingredient, I'll go in there and I'll buy it. 
if I go in there and I don't have a grocery list, I can just say, hey, I need a protein or I need a side or I need a vegetable and I get whatever's on sale. Because to me, it doesn't really matter if it's chicken or turkey or pork. I can make that into whatever I'm making. I can be flexible with it. So I'm a big fan of not making a true grocery list, just knowing the type of food I'm looking for and then taking whatever's on sale. That's brilliant, man. That's that's awesome. That's exactly how my wife does it. She she has different categories. She knows that she's either looking for, you know, sometimes a starch like or a potato or something like that. But then there's like veggies. And then she we almost see meat as sort of like a condiment, you know, like almost like <laughs> sort of extra, the sort of thing that goes on top. And, and the bulk of our protein can come from beans and nuts and, and dairy, different, different things like that. But yeah, she, that's completely how she goes into it. She knows generally what she cooks and how to work the ingredients. And then she looks for the sales. That's the that's the best way to it's sort of like the next level, though. You know, like you have to be familiar with uh, with the kitchen and, and what what to cook and what you like to, to cook and what you enjoy. But once you get that down, yeah, going in there with an open mind, with your eyes open to, to look for those deals, that's 100% the way to do it. So I'm really liking the direction that this is going with like these actionable tips that people can literally go do like this week. So what other cost-cutting hacks are you both doing? Riding our bikes. Yeah, man, yeah, you, man. Let's talk about it. You've oh, yeah. got to ride your bike. If you don't have a bike, you need to get one. Go on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace and find a bike in your area because yeah, Matt and I, like I said, we I take the girls to school on my bike. Matt picks them up on his bike, and I ride into work after I drop off the girls to school on my bike and ride home. And it is just such a pleasant experience. I feel better because that's my exercise. I don't have to go to a gym, right, and do the elliptical or something like that because I'm just riding riding my bike and getting the exercise that way. Or, God forbid, go to the gym and sit on a damn bike. Right, right. <laughs> take a spin class. Yeah. So it's it's that sort of thing. You're avoiding that that time suck of of going to the gym and and also you're feeling fit. And I gotta go to work anyway, right? I'm I'm. It's a seven mile commute, which isn't bad. And I think if your commute is under ten, under ten miles, you should really consider giving it a shot and try on a Saturday. You know, hop on your bike, give it a shot on a Saturday, see how it goes. You're gonna need some practice, right? If you haven't biked in a while, it's gonna take you a few weeks to feel really comfortable. Man, now at this point, I've been doing it for a year and a half uh, and it feels like old hat hopping on my bike. But those first few weeks were, you know, I was a little, little nervous hopping on my bike and, and taking those paths and riding through downtown or whatever it was. But yeah, I think, I think biking's huge. Every mile that you can stay on, be on a bike as opposed to your car, even if it's just a two mile grocery. And let's say it's impossible for you to commute on your bike because it's 45 miles and that's just, that's awful, right? You're not going to do that. I think you maybe could, but let's say you're not going to do that. You know, find a way to go to your, take your three mile grocery run on your bike. Every mile that you can be on a bike as opposed to a car, you're going to save yourself money. And there's ways to lower your insurance costs, lower your gas costs, right? But just by hopping on your bike more and you're going to feel better too. Like it's just a win-win. So I'd like to take that a step further as far as these actionable tips, because I started riding my bike to work some, and it's about 20 to 22 miles round trip. And I'm curious to hear what some of your tips are for making that ride not a nuisance. Like, what are some of the things that you realize, like, ah, if I do it this way, or this is a way to make it more enjoyable, or this is what I need to do to make it to with work, whether it be clothes, whatever. Like, how have you, have you found any little hacks to make that fit into your day a little easier? I'll jump in and say that I love biking too, but my day job is I'm, I'm a wedding photographer. So I have yet to find a way to be able to bike to a wedding with all my gear 
when I'm shooting like a 12 hour wedding day to make that work for me on, on Saturdays. But yeah, other than that, I do love, you know, like Joel said, riding, taking the girls to work, going to the grocery store. Yeah. And one, one thing I'll say to that question, Justin. So I think for a lot of people hopping on a bike, right? Day one and biking that 20 mile round trip bike, bike ride to work is just a no go. They're not going to do it. And I think there are a lot of people who could benefit from buying an e-bike. And so I have both an e-bike and I have a road bike. And my e-bike, because of where we live in Atlanta and I've got two girls on the back of it and there are a lot of hills in Atlanta, I love having that e-bike for riding around town with kids on the back. But I also love my road bike. And so for a lot of people who aren't willing to go 100% human powered all the time, I think they should totally consider an e-bike. The prices have gone down. You're still getting a lot of exercise when riding an e-bike. But you can get there almost as quickly as you would in your car, right? You can go 20 miles an hour on an e-bike, 24 miles an hour. I mean, it's you can go pretty fast. And then also, you're going to be less sweaty when you get to work, so you might not feel like... That, that's another hindrance, I think, for a lot of people is, oh my gosh, I'm going to be just drenched in sweat and people are going to think I'm disgusting. And there are a lot of ways to get around that anyway. But I think with an e-bike, it means you're, you know, you're, you're not going to be pedaling nearly as strenuously. And so... You're still going to get the workout, but you're not going to be just nasty when you, when you show up at, the, at your work store. So I, I think for a lot of people, that's a great thing to consider. As, as the prices drop, it just makes it reasonable for people to consider e-biking torque as opposed to regular bike. Like that, that's, There's something in the middle now that is kind of that perfect fit for a lot of people. And do you have any resources out there for people to go check out to help them figure out an e-bike or like a, you know, because I'm sure that's kind of an intimidating thing, figuring out what kind of brand or what to look for in an e-bike. Do you have any resources yeah. There's a great website run by this one dude. His name's Court, and it's called electricbikereview.com. And, uh, man, I was on his site for hours and hours and hours researching the bike that I wanted to get. He's got a lot of write-ups. He's got a lot of great videos. And so you can kind of find the bike that works the best for you. Like I said, mine is a cargo bike, so I can fit you know two kids on the back and ride them around town. And we make so many memories that way, too. It's, it's a blast. But yeah, I would highly recommend electricbikereview.com. It's it's so good when you're doing that research. I think you can also get there too if you type in like bikesforyuppies.com. Uh, <laughs> it just makes it really easy just to hop on that train and, and take it. In. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I give Joel a hard time because with the uh, the whole e-bike thing, but it's pretty sweet. I ain't gonna lie. I've I've, I've ridden Joel's before. It, it is quite nice. Well, it just it really and truly get will get a lot of people on a bike that wouldn't otherwise consider it. And honestly, it got me yes. back on my road yep. bike. I had the road bike and I wasn't riding it that much. I got the e-bike. I started riding it like mad. And and then I was I, I wanted to hop back on my road bike and do that too. And so I just think there's so much motivation for someone who is a little hesitant to hop on a bike. And that e-bike is that perfect kick in the pants, that perfect sweet spot for so many folks out there to, to actually get back on a bike again. Yeah, it's just an assist, right? You know, and so like, I mean, Cody, you work out, right? It's just like getting a, like a, what do you call it? When someone spots you. A spot, yeah. <laughs> just having like, having that spot, right? Like, like Joel said, it kind of just gives you that kick in the pants and it just gives someone like that extra courage. And so like from, even from a workout standpoint, you would much rather do the action, like do the lift, you know, do, you know, do the reps, whatever with a spot, like someone there to help you out to actually get you doing it. And then eventually, sure. Yeah. You'll, you'll have the motivation and you'll have the strength the power to be able to do it on your own if you wanted to but doing something at all is is better than nothing right and so you know i make fun of the e-bikes here and there but in the end would i rather have all my friends on e-bikes versus you know riding around in their cars oh 100 percent heck 100 yes. percent 
So I'm definitely a fan of all of these awesome ancillary benefits, but the hyper-frugal financial nerd is screaming inside of me, telling me to ask you if you have any idea, like on an annual basis, how much this is saving you, either riding an e-bike or a road bike instead of an expensive car. Well, I, I do know this, that it has given me the ability to drive. I drive less than 7,500 miles a year on my car, on, on both of our cars. And so we get an added insurance cost benefit to be, you know, being under on a low mileage basis with our insurance plan. So that's definitely one thing. If you are able to, let's say, knock off, you know, four or 5,000 miles of driving a year because you're riding your bike so much, that's definitely a good thing to look into. You're obviously cutting your gas costs and wear and tear on your vehicle. You know, the IRS estimates that your costs of driving a car are 54 cents a mile. And so that's probably a little inflated for those cheapos of us out there that are you know, driving $3,200 vehicles. That's certainly inflated. That's not how much it's costing you. But it is costing you money every mile you drive. Don't kid yourself, right? You're going to have to replace your brakes sooner. You're going to have to replace your tires more, more frequently. And so there, there are all those sorts of costs you know, that are added into the cost of car ownership. Um, your car is going to depreciate faster. I mean, there's all these things, right? And, and, and I think the other thing, too, is especially now with the advent of Waze Carpool, which just recently got announced that it's going to be in all 50 states, that's like way cheaper to get around than Lyft and Uber even. And so I think for a lot of people that are willing to ride their bikes most of the time, and let's say they, they're a family with two cars, for instance, like my family, like we're really, really getting incredibly close to, the, to that point where riding the bike makes it incredibly feasible for us to be a one-car family. And think about how much of a savings that is yeah. annually if we're able to make that big move. And I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like that's sort of, I don't want to say that's the gold standard, but a family that's used to having two, you know, we're not even going to talk about families that have, you know, three vehicles for, for just a, a regular single family <laughs> household, but being able to get from two vehicles down to one, like that's the huge breaking point. Like once you're able to do that, I see your life and your happiness just increasing <laughs> so much at that point when you're able to, to drop to, to one car. We're lucky in that I work out of the house and so I don't have to commute to work on a, on a daily basis other than picking the girls up from school. So Joel mentioned that earlier, but our girls both go to the same school. And, and so instead of doing a carpool, we do, yeah, we do the bike pool. Bike pool. <laughs> um, so for me, for our family, we've been a one car family now since, gosh, 2008. So maybe, maybe about, about 10 years now that we've only had one vehicle. And I don't miss having a second car one second. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that's definitely a huge... There's just so many benefits to riding a bike. And I think people don't really see them or people just don't want to even try it. And the e-bike might be that segue. Uh, yeah, I feel like the three tricks to financial independence are probably investing in real estate, investing in <laughs> low-cost index funds, and biking. Like, like, I don't know. Those are probably three of the main ones. And the fourth one, instead of eating, just drink your calories through awesome beers. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so... You know, here a few times you have mentioned your kids and that's something that, you know, me and Cody can't bring to the table. We can't talk about how kids have changed our financial outlook. So I want to ask you guys, what is something that you see a lot of parents who spend so much money on their kids that you realize wasn't important and that you don't spend the money on? What is something? Because I know people always pitch it like a child costs you, you know, they'll throw these huge numbers around. So what is something that you see a lot of parents spending too much money on their kids that you don't think has a good return on investment? Matt decided to scrap diapers altogether and just let's go wherever. Uh, <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a litter box in the corner of every box. room. <laughs> it's really important to have it in every single room because that way if they feel the urge, 
you know, you want them to go right then and there. Exactly. Not on the floor. Go go in the box. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I have no joking. idea if you're joking right now. It's killing me. <laughs> no, we're totally joking. I will say we did cloth diapers, and cloth diapers was a huge money savings, and it's not nearly as bad as people make it sound. But I think there are just a lot of ways in general to rethink how much kids cost. And granted, our kids are a little younger. Mine are three and five. Matt's are one, three, and five. And so we're we're certainly not experts on this by any means, especially if you've got you know, kids that are in their teens and they're saying, Dad, can I have 50 bucks? And and how do you respond to that? I don't know. I'll probably just say no. But, um, but <laughs> yeah, for, for, for my kids, I think one important thing that, that Matt and I talked about was the way that we have community, I think, actually influences how little we spend on our children. You know, we get together for play dates at the local playground or, you know, we decided that this past summer that we were going to have kind of a soccer team of kids in our community. And it wasn't one of those where you get a jersey and a trophy and Capri Suns at the end. It was just like literally a couple dads and a couple soccer balls and 10 kids. And we'd get together you know, once a week if we were able to get together that week. And it didn't cost anybody a dime. Yeah, but, it didn't cost hundreds of dollars of right of fees, which is which is what it costs here in Atlanta in town. I mean, the, the prices are steep. Just and, rethinking, right? Completely yeah, the way exactly. that we did that from the ground up, and the uh, kids still had just as much fun, learned you know just as much, if not maybe even more, by by us being involved and and kind of taking them through that. It's just kind of yeah, like Joel said, rethinking the the things that you think you would normally just drop money on and say, oh, this is something we're going to sign up for. Instead, think, oh, this is something we're going to do together. And, and when you come at it from that approach, it causes you to rethink a lot of different things. I think, too, when your kids are really young, at least, I'm really excited to see them at some point find the things that they're super passionate about and really interested in. But at least where our kids are at age-wise, they're not quite there yet. And so we can kind of bring them into our world and say, you know, hey, we love biking. Let's go out on the bike together and go somewhere fun. And, and so that's kind of like our pastime now. Like the girls love it on the weekends. I mean, our Marty taking my oldest daughter every day on the bike to school. But we, we loved on Saturdays or Sundays saying, okay, where are we going to go? Like, where do you guys want to go? And they get, kind of get to pick the place, the playground, the park, wherever it is. And, you know, we bike over there and we have fun for a couple hours. It just Versus, say, going to like one of those stores where you go in and pay money and they hop around on like the bouncy side. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> At like $20 a pop. Or I don't even know. We've never even been to one of those. Like one of these days we'll go. But for a lot of folks, that's kind of like the default. They think, okay, we got to do something with the kids. We got to get outside. They think, okay, let's hop in the car. Let's drive across town, spend all this time driving, all this money on gas. And then we'll get there and then we'll spend more money on this event or this activity. And instead, doing something like you mentioned, Joel, just like ride, like I mean, you mentioned riding around. Like you guys did that yesterday. We're we're sitting at home. I was getting ready to leave for my wedding, but uh, but you guys pulled up, and you know you had the girls with you. So we, our girls jumped outside, and they all ran around in the front yard for you know ten minutes before I was like, get out of here, I gotta go. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to doing an episode where we kind of analyze a lot of those numbers and kind of call some BS on them. But at this point, you know, we haven't recorded that episode. But, but cost we, of raising children. Yeah, because yeah. that is, I agree that there's that number comes out every year. There's a new study, and it's like kids are going to cost you six hundred million dollars. And <laughs> like, whoa, holy crap! Why I don't want to have a kid times three. <laughs> but it's just it's just not true. And there's so many ways that you can combat that. It really what it comes down to is a mindset shift and not buying into the fact that you and your kids need to be entertained all the time. Yes, you know, the kids love boxes and pots and pans and all that kind of stuff. And so <laughs> in the more the more crap you buy them just means the more crap in the back of the closet, ultimately. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Susie Orman's mom costs thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars a month, so I can't imagine what your children are going to cost you. So good luck, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think that consumer mindset is, is what we're all about. Yeah, I hear Sir, Susie Orman's mom wears like pearl necklaces and like super fancy jewelry <laughs> and stuff. Our kids, yeah, they, none of that stuff. Okay, so something that we've kind of peppered throughout the podcast, but not really taken a deep dive into, even though it's one of the most powerful levers for financial independence, is real estate. And I know you are both involved in real estate in some form or fashion. So I'd love if you could both touch on it from the savings front and from the income generation front. Yeah, man, that's a good thought. So yeah, we, we were talking about ways to cut expenses and this, is something, this isn't something we actually mentioned, but house hacking, I mean, Joel specifically has sort of a, like a, an attached apartment on your house, right? I mean, it's, it's part of the house, but it's divided off. There's um, just a door that separates you know, the front area from the back area. Exactly. And we rent out the back area of our house, and that covers more than half of our mortgage. Yeah, that's a huge way for you guys to, to save money, right? I mean, and that's technically, yeah, that's, that's house hacking. Yeah, completely. And you know, I did that yeah, on the first house I bought, and we do that in the current house that we live in. I think, too, I, I know so many people, guys, that have a kid or two, and they're in an 1,800-square-foot house, and they say, you know what? It's time for us to upgrade to something bigger. And I just think that you should fight that mentality with every fiber of your being because we live in roughly 1,300 square feet with my, my wife and I and our two daughters. Our daughters share a room. Hopefully, they always will. And we live in a 2-1. And that's plenty of space for us. It feels big in a lot of ways, right? And having that income out of the, from the back of the house is awesome. And then just, I don't know, there's something about having less to clean up, less to take care of, less to heat and cool. I think living in a small space is you know, one of the best ways that you can save money when it comes to real estate. The more you have to heat and cool and take care of, is just it's a pain and it's going to cost you a lot more money. Yeah, that's something that we've been talking about a lot lately too because we both have a few rental properties, but house hacking has been a, a topic that we've been talking, I guess, more about personally. And then my family specifically, guys, we are adding on just a small like dining room space basically off of our kitchen. Currently, the way our house is configured is that like our dining room is sort of the front part of our house and we have to load up the tray and I walk down the hallway like a butler with all of our food and it feels very formal. <laughs> and so we're, we're adding on a little bit onto the back. But underneath of what we're adding on for us to live in, we're finishing out a space to Airbnb. And so it's going to be a space that's going to, it's basically, it's going to be a studio, like a studio apartment. It's going to be a one-one. And yeah, really excited to kind of try this out and for us to kind of dabble in, in sort of the Airbnb game. I'm a little bit nervous, I'll be honest with you, because we're, you're kind of dependent on a system. It's like if your entire business was you know, built on Facebook <laughs> or you know, something else like that where the structure or Google and they change their algorithm. Yeah, exactly. Blog or something like that. Yeah. And so that part of it makes me a little bit nervous. But the fact is, is we would still be able to rent that out to, to somebody looking just for a, a small place to live in the neighborhood. Yeah, I was going to say, Matt, you could still rent that out. And I, here's the thing that I, at least the way I view all of my properties is I think of them as trying to maximize revenue and minimize costs always to a certain degree, right? Like I'm not neglecting the care of the property because ultimately that that will result in a lower value and a lower income over time. So I'm trying to take care of all the rental properties that I have and also trying to take care of my primary residence well. But I'm thinking of it as a, I'm, I'm doing a cost benefit analysis every time I'm thinking about doing anything to my house. And so, you know, if the bathroom's in good condition, but you know what, it'd be nicer if it was a little bit bigger maybe, or if the tile were a little more updated. Okay, well, for me, it's not worth it. And so I'm not going to do it. And you know what? Maybe at some point, someday down the road, five years from now, I, I will update a bathroom. 
but I'm always thinking about the you know that that cost benefit analysis when I'm thinking about whether I'm going to do any improvements to my home or what I'm when I'm buying a rental home. Like, hey, how much is this going to earn me, and is this property going to you know, every month? Is my cash flow going to be good? And then on top of that, is this a property that I see doing well over the years in a neighborhood that I'm, I see appreciating faster than other neighborhoods because of the infrastructure that's coming into place, because of the way that this community is on the upswing, it's changing, there's positive things happening here. When I'm looking at rental real estate, that's what's really important to me is finding something that I think is going to do well over the long term and appreciate well, but also provide me good cash flow every month. Because I think that's one of the probably most underutilized ways to reach financial independence is through real estate. Because when we're talking about all these amazing tax advantage ways to invest, they're great, right? I take advantage of those as well. But the great thing about real estate is that you can see that return immediately from month one. If you buy real estate well and hold it over the long term, you're going to see increased rents, increased appreciation in the property, and your fixed costs are essentially going to stay pretty much the same. Yeah. You should be seeing a return on your money from day one, right? <laughs> if you don't, then you, you, made, a, you made a mistake. Probably. Yeah. You bought a bad property. Probably. <laughs> But that's the thing too, man. Like, and that's what's so hard about real estate sometimes, I think, is that a lot of that isn't, it doesn't kind of come down to numbers. Like, you can sort of gauge that, like, okay, how much would it cost to, like, yes, I can have, get a dollar amount on how much it would cost to, say, renovate this bathroom in this property or add a bathroom, say. But it's still sort of a gut as to what you think that that could rent for. Like, certainly you've got comps and you've got to trust those numbers. But in the end, it comes down to a decision on taste. And what you think will be able to work for you and what you think the, the neighborhood and what the market will be able to sustain. And I think for a lot of folks, that's the trickiest part is deciding, OK, yes, I've got these numbers. But in the end, it still comes down to you making a decision on a, you know, on a specific property. And sometimes it doesn't just come down to the numbers. OK, Joel, Matt, so you've given out some great information today. But if people want to get more, if they can't get enough of you two, like me and Cody can't, where should they go look for you two? <laughs> I know you want more, fellas. Well, first of all, I would say check out the podcast. So How to Money, you know, you can find us anywhere, but especially on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, wherever you're listening to this show, find us there. And you can also check our website out. We've got other helpful articles and also all of our you know, podcast episodes are uploaded there, too. And that's howtomoney.com. OK, so. Matt, you first. What is your number one tip if someone wants to accelerate their path to financial freedom? All right, man. I think for most folks, the number one expense that people have out of their paycheck every single month is either rent or their mortgage payment, right? Their housing expenses. And so, you know, you can talk about couponing. That's like the complete opposite of what to do that would have a huge impact on the amount that you're able to save. But really what you need to do is start with the biggest things that you're spending money on. And so find a way, like we were just talking about, to either, whether it be living in a smaller home, finding ways to house hack, getting roommates on board, or finding, you know, again, going back to house hacking, finding a way maybe that you can generate income off of your, your primary residence. Any way that you can reduce the amount that you're spending every month on housing expenses, you're going to come out ahead. Or finding a way to get your small children to pay rent. Oh, man, they work hard for it. I tell you what. <laughs> And how about you, Joel? Yeah, I think what I would tell people is, in my opinion, frugality gives you options. And the more you can cut back in all the areas of life that don't matter, right, that you prioritize the few places that are meaningful for you to spend money, that you feel like you get a lot of bang for your buck when it comes down to it, 
that you know you, you don't have to cut back ruthlessly in every single area of your life and live a life of total deprivation. But if you are able to prioritize those few areas and cut back in a major way in all of these other areas of life that don't change anything, that don't register, I would say that frugality and that adding to that savings level gives you so many options. I feel like when I was young, cutting back and being incredibly frugal allowed me to change my entire life's future because I didn't know what I was saving for, but I was saving. And then it turned out I had 20% to put down on a house because I was driving like a jalopy of a car essentially. And so <laughs> it was it was these decisions that I made early on to be incredibly frugal that gave me options later on when I kind of found out what those goals were that I wanted. So I didn't even know why I was being cheap in the first place, right? But I, I was. And to me, that made all the difference because then I had this power, this spending power to invest in things that were going to make an appreciable difference in my life. And that first house that I bought has made, it has still been the biggest game changer. It's been the best purchase that I've ever made in my entire life. And so I would say that frugality gives you options. So be frugal now. All righty, guys. Well, now it's time for the world famous wildcard question. This is where a question just comes to one of us randomly in a vision, in a dream. We're not sure where they come from. <laughs> and Joel, you're going to get this one first. Boom, but you're both going to answer, so don't don't think you're getting away, Matt. So here's what <laughs> it is: If you had to characterize your co-host as a style or flavor of beer, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm first on this one. I would say Matt is an old ale. I would say um, <laughs> an, an oud brune, if you would. <laughs> So an old ale is actually, uh, I would say, a really underappreciated style of beer. Not Aww. many people make it, Aww. and and I really enjoy one from time to time. That, uh, but uh, very rarely. That's why I don't like to spend much time with Matt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I really love that that style of beer, and it's. I would just say Matt has kind of, yeah, you know, an old man's soul to him a little bit too. So an old ale is kind of fitting, right? He's got. Uh, he's like wiser than his years, and so yeah, Matt is. Probably an old ale. All right, let's go, Matt. Thanks for the awkward question, Justin. <laughs> mm, what are you I looking at beers? <laughs> oh, he's cheating. It's supposed to be off the dome. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not looking. I'm just thinking. So the first thing that came he's, to my he's staring deep into my eyes right now, <laughs> searching the depths of your soul. The first thing that came to my mind, dude, was uh, we've had a fantastic Norwegian beer. I can't remember the. You, you remember the name of that brewery? No, I should. It, I'm Norwegian and I love beer. So how do I? How did I forget that? But I still don't know if that's right. You know what I'm going to say for you is going to be like a like a daily session sessionable IPA. Aww. It's like something that you can have pretty much like all the time, anytime. You don't ever really get tired of it. Joel's always down for for hanging out, having a good time, and that's what you want out of a out of a session beer, which is just you know basically a beer that you can have two or three of instead of like a a single beer where you're wanting to spend a night dedicated to this one beer. Session beers, you can just you can have them whenever. That's what I think about Joel. I'm tearing up over here, guys. Oh man, that was sweet. You're gonna make you, me sick. You, you created a moment. You guys have like deepened our relationship, so thank you. <laughs> I think I think me and Cody are gonna need some kind of counseling after this is over because we see how fragile our relationship now is after seeing how strong yours is. <laughs> and I would say, I, Cody, I, I view you as a, a cranberry and vodka. You know, just like a fight. <laughs> light and fresh but like gets to the point you know like you don't mess around i'm like kind of sweet but i sting a little bit <laughs> yeah exactly just um, enough pucker to make you to make you pucker 
All right, so thank you guys so much again for coming on. This was a super fun episode. I knew it was going to be after we met you guys at FinCon. I'm like, we have to do a four-way episode here. (laughs) So thank you both. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Matt, for hopping on. And we hope the listeners enjoyed as well. Yeah, man, we had a great time. It was great talking to you guys, especially after meeting you all in person uh, a couple weeks ago. We look forward to more hangs in person in the future. For sure, good times. And as Matt and I always say on our show, best friends out. Yeah, guys, best friends out. Man, Cody, another solid episode, and these episodes are so easy when you have two guys like this on the show. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I could literally talk to Joel and Matt all day, and we did talk to him for quite a bit after the interview was over, just kind of shooting the crap back and forth and talking about finances, money, just how to optimize your life. Yeah, and we had a little bit of everything in this episode. You know, we got into their backstory. We talked about kind of what got them started on their financial journey, and then we really get to dig it into their financial journey right now as it pertains to this family they're starting, you know, between the two of them, there's five young kids, and they're kind of figuring this out as they go, but they've got it pretty figured out already. And another thing I liked was just how tangible the tips were. I mean, we literally covered the gamut on ways to save money. We covered housing, whether it's like renting out your basement or creating a little offshoot apartment suite to rent on Airbnb or transportation where you can bike to work. And if you maybe biking is too big of a hindrance, get an electric bike. I know Matt was giving Joel a little bit of crap calling it cheating, but hey, it's still a lot cheaper. You're still getting the exercise and it's an awesome option if you're in a bikeable area. And Justin, I know you probably love this one talking about groceries as someone who spends 65 bucks a month. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I got to give Matt credit. I mean, he's still keeping his budget super low and he's got five people in the family, including some little kids. So he might be a little more picky than me, but uh, he's killing it at, you know, 450 bucks a month for five. Like you said, this episode has a lot of tangible tips. You know, he's talking about they've really cut back on using so much meat. They talk about not using prepackaged foods and how a lot of Americans just overeat. So just keeping an eye on quantity is a big thing. But then beyond that, it's both a tangible and kind of a philosophical topic that they get into, which is creating this community around their family and these children. So instead of joining a soccer league, you know, they just have 10 friends who have kids and they get together and they have their own little soccer league and you're not paying for jerseys and trophies and registration fees, but you have the same outcome. So I really love that. Yeah. And it's really just a focus on value and happiness because I'm sure the kids don't care. They don't care if they're wearing a jersey or if they're wearing a shirt that was a dollar at Savers or at the thrift store or whatever, but they just want to spend time with their parents. That's all it is. And they're just optimizing their life to the fullest trying to live the best life they can for as cheap as possible. And actually, I want to caveat that. Not as cheap as possible, because I know Joel was saying, yeah, of course he can move into the slums and probably save a few hundred bucks a month on living expenses. But then he gets rid of that community. He gets rid of the neighbor who he waves to every morning. He gets rid of the kids who his kids can play soccer with or basketball with. And so it was about the money. A lot of this episode is optimizing, but optimizing to the point where you're still enjoying and you're still living your life. I think that's very important to distinguish. I was, for me, when I was looking at it, I was... Whoa, Cody. What was that, Justin? It's another call to action, Cody. And this week, what we want the listeners to do is to sit down and list out some of those things that aren't going to show up in a spreadsheet. And what I mean by that is they were talking about, yeah, they could live in a smaller house in a, in a worse neighborhood, but then they wouldn't have that community they've built, these friends. They wouldn't be able to drop their kids off at school. There's a lot of things that could change the way your life looks when you reach financial independence that just aren't going to show up on those numbers. So yeah, you know, while these savings rates and all that stuff is important, you also need to be thinking about the lifestyle you want to live when you get there. Yeah, man, I love that. And I love to think of financial independence as a pendulum, like we've talked about before, where you can swing way too far on one side where you're just spending, 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 and you might be super happy or fooling yourself into thinking that you're happy spending this money. 
Then on the other side, there's extreme frugality, living in a tin can, eating dumpster scraps. And at some point in the middle of that pendulum, swinging back and forth, is your sweet spot. And I think Matt and Joel have done an incredible job finding their sweet spot, what makes them happy, and how they can spend their money in the most effective ways possible. Absolutely. All right. And so if you want to reflect back on this episode, see any of the resources we mentioned, see any of the tactics or strategies that we talked about, you can visit the show notes at thefyshow.com slash how to money. And in our private Facebook group, one of the best groups on the internet at thefyshow.com slash community, we can share our community wins. We can figure out those little things, those little hacks where your quality of life doesn't diminish or maybe it even gets better while you're saving money. So we'd love to hear some of our community wins there. And so if you like this episode, please hit us with that five-star rating and review. It really helps us out. And Justin and I really, really appreciate it. So thanks so much for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. 